So let's just very quickly describe what he used to wear. So if he could, he'd have his shirt ironed. Can you believe it? He, they would press it. His, his Batman would press his shirt for him. It was a short-sleeved shirt. He'd wear a pair of shorts and a belt. And sometimes if he was on real parade, he'd wear his Sam Brown, but not very often. And then he'd have bare legs and he'd wear the... Um, shoes the clogs that they wore in the camp which is basically a wooden sole with a piece of uh, strap over it so you're not talking about somebody in uh, number one mess dress but you are talking about somebody who was wearing a clean shirt and a pair of shorts with a with a belt around the shorts um and he was he took great pride in his in his in his in his look because he knew it was going to inspire confidence in people and it was going to inspire confidence in the japanese because they actually respect him. They didn't like him because he was a pain in some ways. Because he was so all, always on the on the make and trying to negotiate with them. But they respected him because they knew that he kept his camp disciplined and clean and safe. Welcome back to the Death Railway Revisited podcast. That was Julie Summers talking not about Alec Guinness in the bridge on the River Kwai, but rather her grandfather, Colonel Philip Tuzi, the man who really built the bridge on the Thai Burma Railway. And I'm Nick Fordham, and inspired by the movie The Bridge on the River Kwai, I'm on a journey to discover what happened here in Southeast Asia 80 years ago. Why, at a conservative estimate, approximately 100,000 people died, maybe more, constructing a railway from Thailand to Burma. And in doing so, I've unearthed some surprising facts about what actually happened and what did not. You say there was no bridge over the River Kwai. In fact, there was no River Kwai. Absolutely, absolutely. Along the way, I'm talking to experts to help me piece the story together. People like the man whose voice you've just heard, Rod Beatty creator of the Thailand-Burma Railway Centre in Kanchanaburi, and Julie Summers, author of The Colonel of Tamakan, Philip Tuzi, and The Bridge on the River Kwai. And to get a first-hand contemporary perspective, I'll also be reading extracts from diaries, letters and memoirs from prisoners of war who were there and whose lives were forever shaped by their experiences building the Death Railway. Philip Tuzi was a 35-year-old family man living near Liverpool, England, when war broke out in 1939. He worked for Baring's Bank and was also a Territorial Army officer. After seeing active service in France in 1940 and being evacuated from Dunkirk, Tuzi and his unit were sent to the Far East. When Singapore fell in February 1942, Tuzi was ordered personally to evacuate again and sailed to Ceylon but Tuzi would not abandon his men and refused to go. It was a decision that changed his life. Julie Summers and I discussed how Colonel Tuzi was very different from the enthusiastic bridge-building Colonel Nicholson portrayed by Alec Guinness. He had no interest in building the railway per se. It was just something that they were forced to do. He knew it was illegal under the terms of the Geneva Conventions, but he also knew that the Japanese had the upper hand. So what he did was to find out areas where there was room for negotiation. I asked Julie if her grandfather had ever seen the film The Bridge on the River Kwai. He did. So he first went to see the film in Liverpool with my mother and he, he came out of the cinema and he turned around and he said, well, that was a very good bit of storytelling. But he said, it's nothing like what we went through. 
and my mother knew very little about what he had gone through, but that was that stuck with her. And then he heard from various prisoners who'd seen the film that they had regarded Alec Guinness's role as a terrible slur on his leadership and they got very very angry on his behalf and he kept saying no one's going to believe this is history everyone's going to know it's fiction um, anyway gradually gradually he and Percival got more and more concerned that people would believe that this is how the British had behaved not just he but the British had behaved in in Thailand um, and so they asked Lean and um, particularly Sam Spiegel to put a note in to say that this was uh, this was a film based entirely on fiction and not on the real story and basically they just got laughed off. You know why would Hollywood want to justify it? They knew they picked up a novel and made a good film out of it. They didn't care if it was just close enough to reality to make it uncomfortable for the sixty thousand men who'd been there. What was that in comparison to the millions of people who were going to watch their film? And you know in the end he shrugged his shoulders and said, "Well, fine. Let's hope Hollywood." you know, is right, um, and that people don't always believe that that's exactly what happened on the Thailand Burma Railway. Oh, but he did say one nice thing. He did say, but he said, but we did whistle Colonel Bogey. And my mother remembered him saying that, and she said, you did what? And he said, yes, we had a camp band. Oh, we used to play the, uh, we used to play the men out and play them back in after work, because that was good for morale. And then when the Japanese came to inspect us at Nong Pladuk, oh, and then in the final officers' camp, he said, we used to sing Colonel Bogey, but we sang it to all the rude words. <laughs> yes, I've heard that, yeah. So one of the things they got right was the Colonel Bogey thing. But yes, funny enough, the film had to censor out the, rule, uh, the, the rude words, and so that's why they whistle uh, as supposed to sing it, yeah. Exactly. When the POWs arrived in Thailand, they went to a holding camp at Bampong. From there, they were sent to work all along the railway line to work on various projects, building bridges and viaducts, making embankments and cuttings, dredging rivers for stones to be used as ballast. All of this construction work was carried out simultaneously right along the entire rail line. During the construction of the railway, four million cubic metres of earth and three million cubic metres of rock were shifted by prisoners and labourers, and 14 kilometres of bridges were built. Tuzi and his men were sent to Tamakan camp near Kanchanaburi. There they would build two bridges, a permanent steel and concrete bridge, and a temporary wooden bridge to be used in the event that the steel bridge was damaged or destroyed. Kanchanaburi was a key junction on the Thai side of the railway, not only was it the only significant town on the Thai side, it was also the key crossing point over the Meiklong River. So Tuzi's bridges were a vital cog in the railway line. I asked Julie how Colonel Tuzi coped with the dual responsibility of leading his men and working with the Japanese to essentially support their war effort. And my grandfather realised that, yes, of course they were the enemy in, in the terms of a war situation, but actually these were men he had to deal with, he had to have some kind of communication with if he wanted to fulfil his ambition, which was to bring as many men back to Britain as possible. Yes, um, and and so I just before we started talking, I mentioned three words that had come up for me when I'd read about your grandfather and about his leadership style. The first one is empathy, uh, and the second one, I think, is diplomacy. And that's a good example of that. It, it wasn't about stubbornly refusing to do what the Japanese wanted to do. It was about finding a balance, which meant that the men who were having to build this railway line and this bridge 
would get home. That was the payoff, really, wasn't it? Getting home. The thought that dominated the mind of every prisoner. Getting home soon. Getting home alive. Getting home in one piece. So what would it take to increase the odds of this happening? I discussed leadership in general, and specific leaders like Colonel Toosey and the Australian doctor Colonel Weary Dunlop with Rod Beatty at the Thai Burma Railway Centre. Colonel Weary Dunlop is one of the legendary figures of the Death Railway. He got his nickname at Melbourne University, a play on his name. Apparently, an advert at the time claimed that Dunlop tyres never wear out. And Dunlop was a man full of energy. An accomplished sportsman, he played rugby for Australia against the All Blacks. Dunlop was 32 years old and working as a doctor in London when war broke out in 1939. He had a particularly peripatetic war. A member of the Royal Australian Medical Corps, he ran a mobile surgical unit and served in Palestine, Syria, Egypt, Libya and Greece before being posted to Java in the Dutch East Indies. It was there he and his men were captured by the Japanese. They were shipped to Singapore and then overland to Thailand to work on the Death Railway. So what are the type of things that they're doing that creates this admiration uh, and, and helping the men survive this incredible ordeal? Weary was, as I said, he was physically a big man. Yeah. And he tended to fight the Japanese Koreans and got punished accordingly. Mm. Some of our other Australian commanding officers, Colonel Williams, similarly, he fought the Japanese in, on the Burma end and he got punished similarly to wearied. On one occasion, Japanese and Korean guards beat Dunlop relentlessly with rifle butts, chairs and boots and then tied him up with rope and left him in great pain, breathing difficulty with fractured ribs. When released hours later, Dunlop writes, My legs were functionless. Slowly, painfully, I found with the return of circulation I could move them and my feet. At last, a little drunkenly, I was on my feet again. I stood to attention, bowed and said, And now, if you will excuse me, I shall amputate the Dutchman's arm who's been waiting all day. I was determined to show them that Australians were tough. Others were a little bit more agree. They, they realised that this railway is going to be built. Mm. So if we talk to the Japanese a little and try and get some concessions out of them. Mm. And one of your leading British commanders is Colonel Toosey. Yeah. In command of the camp at Tamakan, building the bridges. He knew that those bridges were going to be built. Mm with our men, over our men, whatever. So he agreed to at least work with the Japanese to a certain limit mm. for the benefit of his men to try and get some concessions from the Japanese for food, for treatment, etc. If you talk to Julie Summers, Colonel Toosey's granddaughter, she can tell you of, the, of all the scars on his back from where he was flogged. Mm. Right. Yes. Yes, he had scars on his head and scars on his hands and his arms. I don't know about his legs. I don't think I ever saw him wearing shorts. <laughs> he, he, he says here, 
and and this is I'm quoting your grandfather here. He, if you took the responsibility, as I did, there was no question about it. It increased your suffering very considerably. And he's talking about sometimes just facing up and taking that beating to show his men, really, that that he was taking a beating on their behalf. I reached the stage when I thought, I really cannot go to this hut again and get beaten up again. I'd reached the limit almost of endurance, but then I thought, they rely on you, you must go. It's a good quote, isn't it? It is a good quote, and he... I mean, there must have been times, mustn't there, when he just felt absolutely at the end of his tether. Whatever he did, he had to be able to justify it to his men. And if he took a beating on behalf of the men, they knew that and they respected him for it. And it meant that they gave him tremendous loyalty. And if they stepped out of line, he was tough. He didn't take anything lying down. So if a man, for example, stole a blanket from another man, which happened on one occasion, he got two regimental sergeant majors to take that man out and give him a jolly good hiding. And the man never stepped out of line again. So he he took the beatings because he wanted to show that there was a, a firm leadership there, but it was fair. And when he really stood his ground, when he really believed that some wrong had been done to his men, you know, that, that's when they that's when they admired him most, I think. Yeah, you're absolutely... I've, I've got the quote of that anecdote that you just said about the, the, administering a beating to one of the soldiers who stole the blanket from one of his very ill comrades. And yes, the toughness comes through in his voice here. This is him speaking to that soldier. I'm just going to tell you this. If you ever dare to step out of line, I'll starve you to death and you know I've got the power to do it because I've got control over the food. Now you're going to get beaten up by the two regimental sergeant majors behind this hut, and if you dare to do anything about it or report me after the war, all I can tell you is that you will suffer more than I will. It's very tough, isn't it? Yes, it is, and I don't want anybody to think that he was sort of lily-livered and, and it was pussyfooting about, but he was absolutely fair. And, you know, you, because he couldn't run a camp like that with three and a half thousand men who were some of them in desperate conditions if he didn't have discipline and everybody had self-respect so he had you know he had no beards because he wanted the men to keep clean apart from anything else it was more healthy he made sure that there was no black market trading under the wire and if there was he said to the men I'll cover your backs, but I want a part of that. I'll have the tax on that for the hospital. So he was prepared to blur the lines a little bit, but only if the end result was of benefit to the entire camp and to all the men in the camp. Strong leadership had a significant effect on morale and survival rates. I do a little research after talking to Rod and Julie, and the figures I find speak for themselves. The Australian official history of the railway records that in the Conu Hintock area, one of the toughest spots on the line, Weary Dunlop's men had the lowest fatality rates, around 12%, whilst others in the same area rose as high as 50%. As for Colonel Tuzi, by the time his men had built those bridges in April 1943, 700 British POWs had lost their lives on the railway. Yet only nine of those were at Tamakan Camp with Tuzi, a fatality rate of just 0.4%. Sadly, I read, not all leaders were so dedicated to the well-being of their men. Stanley Pavillard, the 30-year-old doctor who was so upset at having to leave men behind on the march from Banpong, 
describes arriving at a camp where the place was full of officers who sat around on their fat behinds and did nothing, either for the men or for the hygiene and the decency of the camp. They played bridge, they ran sly rackets for food, and then lit fires to cook little meals for themselves. And they cared damn all about arriving parties, and least of all for the arriving sick. I asked Rod Beatty if this was common, or was it just a few isolated incidents? It does happen, and it was obvious in some places. If the officer was not seen to be at least having some or taking some notice and care of the men. Didn't mean to say he had to be labouring with a pick or a shovel or whatever, but he was there combating the Japanese or the Koreans on behalf of the men. Mm. So he might have been out there as a work supervisor checking uh, the intermediary between the Japanese engineers and the POW. If he was there in between and was seen to be caring for his men, he didn't have to be doing the physical labouring. He just had to have the welfare of his men at heart. Then his men would look up to him. Mm. Others, they absolutely refused. They just went and hid. Mm. Right? And they had no respect shown to them by their men. Well, unsurprisingly. And, and also some of them, it was their responsibility to stay behind in the camp and look after the sick men and, and ensure that the camp was in a decent condition for when they returned from work. Is that correct? Certainly. After a 2,000-kilometre rail journey from Singapore, I'm back at the bridge. The steel bridge at Kanchanaburi took nine months to build. Coincidentally, it also took nine months to build the bridge that they used and destroyed in the movie The Bridge on the River Kwai. The real bridge, the steel bridge at Kanchanaburi, was damaged several times in air raids during the war and finally put out of action in June 1945. It was rebuilt by Japanese prisoners at the end of the war and has remained in use ever since. It's the only steel bridge on the Thai side of the railway and it's that bridge that I'm off to visit. It's six o'clock in the morning. I'm standing right by the bridge in Kanchanaburi, the so-called bridge on the River Kwai. And I'm going to get a good train this morning. It should be arriving in a few minutes. There's only about 80 kilometres left of the entire 415 kilometre tracks. And so I'm going to travel along that this morning. and see what it's like. It's already quite warm and it's only six o'clock in the morning. The town's just beginning to come awake as you can hear.
so this last station we're on was by the river. And we're now following the river line after going through agricultural land for half an hour. And lots of tourists have got on now and the train's much busier. Everyone's taking photos of the river that's below us and you can see how steeply it's cut into the cliffs on one side. The railway just follows the cliff very, very tightly. And hugs the cliff line. And below us, down in the valley, is the river. It's an incredible setting. It's, it's very beautiful, the river slowly meandering below us and in the distance mountains, trees there's a few holiday homes as well it's a very tranquil setting really must be one of the most beautiful settings for a railway in the world and yet of course what made this railway the conditions that the people were in who made this railway absolutely horrific This spot on the river, 40 kilometres and seven stations down the track from Kanchanaburi, is one of the most picturesque on the entire railway, Wangpo Viaduct. Stanley Pavillard, whom we just heard frustrated with idle officers, describes in his book Bamboo Doctor, Wangpo 80 years ago. The camp was built on a piece of flat ground quite near the river on the other side of which was a high cliff of solid rock. A ledge of a quarter of a mile long had to be carved out of this to carry the railway. Working up there 60 feet above the river, completely exposed to the blazing sun, our men suffered terribly, and many of them collapsed from heat exhaustion. This was the result not only of the heat, but also of the glare of sunlight from the bare rocks all around. Lieutenant John Coast, last seen enjoying his work with elephants, also worked on the Wangpo viaduct and concluded, The Japanese may have been disinterested administrators, but they were far from incompetent engineers and could produce stupendous engineering feats like this 800-yard viaduct at Wangpo. Built in less than six terrifying months, it clings to the face of a cliff above a bend in the river. And Rod Beatty echoed that point about Japanese engineering when we talked at the Thai Burma Railway Centre. I mean, it's an astonishing, particularly when you walk along the railways, you see the bridges. You, it's an astonishing feat of engineering. And I know you have a background in engineering. I'm sure you'd agree with that. I know it seems a, a funny thing to say anyway, but it is an astonishing feat of engineering. It is. And the more you study it, yeah. the more you realise that. And I've, I've said before on numerous occasions, it's very difficult to acknowledge the skill of the Japanese engineering on this railway counted by the loss of 100,000 people to yes. build this thing. Because in order to build it, and particularly build it that quickly, you need to have a completely callous disregard for the life 
of the people who are working on your railway. Absolutely. Work them till they die and then just replace it with more, with more, with more. Yeah. But then that thought process is in the Japanese military. They did it with their own men mm. on a battle situation. Just send in first wave. If you're lost, you send in a second wave. You lose them, you send in a third wave. And hopefully one of them will eventually take the objective. The railway was going to be built, whatever the cost. With the exception of the bridges at Tamakan Kanchanaburi and the viaduct at Wang Po, this early stretch of the railway was comparatively straightforward to build, as Andrew Snow of the Thai Burma Railway Centre explained to me. So, Andrew, uh, tell us which station we're at and tell me about why this part of the railway uh, was relatively easier and better to work on than some of the railway later on. Well, this first section of railway from Shanghai up at, as far as uh, Wampo, or the viaducts at Tom Crossay, mm. is flat. Yep. It's, you know... The, the embankment is 12 inches high. There's the odd little bridge. So the uh, the means of construction here was simple. Just clear the trace of the railway, build a small embankment, come along later, lay your sleepers and rails, move on to the next section, doing it all again. It's not till later on uh, in the construction period of the railway or at different places on the railway that it becomes more difficult. So at the same time, these guys here are building in a flat area. Mm. Not too far further on, the guys building massive uh, bridges and embankments on a more difficult area. Yes. When the time moves on and this section is completed quickly because it's fairly straightforward, those sections are still have lots of work to do. By that time, the weather has changed. It's coming to wet season. The men are more fatigued. The men that they're sending to replace them uh, have had months uh, in back in Singapore to get different diseases. So they're either sick or recovering sick when they're coming up here. They're coming up in the wet season, prevalence of malaria, dysentery uh, increase, and the work they're doing is more difficult. Therefore, the death rate increases dramatically from the early months of November, December of 42 to June, July, August of 43. This early section of the railway had several advantages to sections further down the line. For example, I discussed with Julie Summers how Colonel Tuzi and his men in Tamakan camp were very lucky. They were close to fresh water and a town, Kanchanaburi, where food and medicine were available. The work was hard, but conditions in the camp were bearable. And Kanchanaburi was the hometown of a remarkable man, Boon Pong, a Thai merchant contracted to supply the camps with food. But he was to do much more than that. A secret organisation called the V Organisation. 
a group of European businessmen in Bangkok, heard about the conditions on the railway and raised money to get food and medicine to the POWs. But they needed somebody to help them to do it, someone with easy access to the camps. Here's Julie telling me about the work that they did. And basically they gathered together money and medicines which were smuggled up uh, onto the railway through this amazing man called Mr Boon Pong who was, had been the mayor of Kanchanaburi before the Second World War. Uh, but he was anti-Japanese, so he'd sort of kind of slightly fallen out of favour. And he ran a grocery business. So he, was, uh, he had the um, grocery business that took food into the camps. And so he would smuggle money and medicines into the prison camps in his grocery baskets on a fairly regular basis and they would be then taken to the cookhouse or to one of the uh, buildings and would be distributed and very very few people knew about the organisation and the particularly about the logistics of it so in Kanchanaburi camp when in Tamakan camp when my grandfather was running it as a hospital he knew about it uh, and about four other men did but in Tamakan he he reckoned he got about £17,500 worth of medicines and money into the camp over a period of six months, which is, I don't know what it is in modern money, it's about a quarter of a million pounds worth of, of medication, and um, you know, which is in some ways is a drop in the ocean, but actually was a significant, made a significant difference. Mm. And when, when he first had men coming down from the railway, so sick and, and, and ill, he was losing about two to three men a day. And by the time the medicines had come in in November 1943, it was down to two, three men a week, which was a remarkable change around. Yes, it's a huge, it's a huge change around. And after the war, he, he ganged together to to send some money back to Thailand uh, in recognition of all the work that Bampong had done. When my grandfather got home, he had called. He'd got promises from a lot of the men while they were in the prison camps to send money that he could send back to Mr. Boon Pong, and he said every single um, check or promise that had been made, bar one, came good and he got the money and he was able to send it back to Thailand. And Mr Boon Pong bought a, um, a bus company which he ran in Bangkok. I think it was the number six or number seven bus company which he ran uh, for many years after the war. I'm also told that the, he, he contacted the British government and said, listen, I'm owed a huge amount of money and the British government said, oh, it's nothing to do with us. So, so, yeah. so <laughs> yeah, so, 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 so luckily... Luckily, grandfather was working for bearings and they were able to get the money out to him. And it was quite a lot of money, I think, in those days. It made, it made a significant difference. And then Mr Boon Pong was recognised after the war. He was given the George Medal, I think. But that didn't come from my grandfather. It came from somebody else. Or the British Empire Medal. One of the, one of the medals he was given. Boon Pong smuggled medicine, money and food into many camps. He went up and down the Quenoy River dropping off supplies even during the difficult rainy season and helping hundreds of sick men. He seems to me like an Asian Oscar Schindler, first and foremost a businessman, and yes, he had contracts with the Japanese to supply the camps. But when he saw what was happening, he felt compelled to help. And in doing so, he not only risked his life, but he also saved many other British and Australian lives. I think it's a shame that more people, especially from those two countries, don't know about this amazing man. The experience Tuzi's men had at Tamakan Camp near Kanchanaburi was very different to the next place I'm going to visit. 
80 kilometres to the west of Canterbury, is perhaps the most infamous spot on the railway, a place called Hellfire Pass. So I'm standing in Hellfire Pass at the moment. You can probably hear underneath my feet the, the rocks that would have been blasted away to make the ballast for the rail line. A couple of things strike you immediately. One is the rock, how tough the rock is. And you can see the marks where they would have put dynamite in the rock and blown it away. You can see the cracks, how tall it is. And, and I'll put that, some photographs up so you can see that. It's 25 metres approximately at its highest, I would say. And uh, 75 metres in length. How hot it is here. And just get a real sense here of the work that they did. It's still in the rocks, the cracks, the holes where the dynamite was. You get a real sense of that, which is quite extraordinary 18 years on. It's also quite a peaceful spot. You can probably hear the background noise of the, of the jungle and actually viewing out from here out towards the jungle is a beautiful sight. However, of course, they wouldn't have had time to appreciate that when they were here. Some of their hardest working hours and conditions were right here in this very spot. That was when they had the speedo period. And I'm going to learn all about that in a minute when I talk to the people from the Hellfire Pass Centre. So after exploring the cutting, I talked with Nan, Operations Manager at the Hellfire Pass Centre. Let's just start with Hellfire Pass. How does it get its name, Hellfire Pass? Well, Hellfire Pass is not the actual name of the cutting mm. uh, on the on the map. Uh, if you study, you know that this location is called Konyu Cutting. Mm. So Hellfire Pass was more like a give a name that was given by the prisoner of war um, during the time because of the intense work condition of this particular section of the um, railway. Because um, this area is basically the um, deepest and longest cutting in the entire 415 kilometers of the Burma Thai Railway. So um, because of its intensity, um, it, um, it was very hard to make and um, it took a lot of manpower. It was so difficult. And um, that's when they, you know, entering the speedo period. And the men had to work very long hours, during, including at night times, and that's when they had to use um, bamboo lanterns mm. hanging on the wall of the cutting to illuminate the work sites. And when these very thin, very skinny men, you know, walking around carrying heavy rocks um, at night time with Japanese guards looking up from the top, you know, it gives. Um, the most vivid impression of, of a scene from hell. Mm. So it was called Hellfire Pass. 
Yes. Well, I've got a quote here which exactly says that. It says, at mm. night it looked like a scene out of Dante's Inferno. Mm. If you stood on top of the cutting, you'd see the burning fires at intervals of about 20 feet. You'd see the shadows of the Japanese moving around with sticks, beat, belting men. Mm. You could distinguish the prisoners moving rocks around, hammering and clearing. There was shouting and bellowing. And this went on all night. And so, yes, exactly. You can, it's a very mm. vivid picture, isn't it? Yes, but also very brutal and very, um, you know, very intense for the mm. men to have to work in that very um, exposed condition because mm. we have to remember that they work at daytime as well as it was at nighttime. So, you know, after a long day and they still continue doing the same thing, you know, repeating the same work at nighttime. So over time it gets very exhausted and then of course the men's very, um, very, um, they have very little food, you know, yeah. hunger is always the constant problem that they have. So they go through a very hardship. Let's go back to the Speedo period, because you've mm. mentioned the Speedo period. Mm. For people who don't know what the Speedo period is, what is the Speedo period? It basically means working faster, mm. you know, making things quickly. Yeah, because it's, you know, speed is, is its speed. But, uh, you know, the Japanese term, you know, they call it Speedo. Mm. Um, but basically it's a command from the Japanese telling the prisoners, you know, hurry, working faster. You know. Because at that stage, th there was the need for the railway to be completed as quickly as possible, so it could be useful for the Japanese in the war. That was yes, yes, yeah. of course. This um, they they really hope this uh, railway would be a strategic transport for them to support their troops in in Burma. You know, and um, when work gets you know became delayed. Um, Japanese use this strategy, you know, forcing the men to work longer hours and to work faster. So um, they had to work up to 18 to 20 hours per day or even more, you know, to be able to, um, you know, make this work go as, as quickly as they could. That's extraordinary to think of when you think of how hot it is and how little food that they had so 18 hours is an incredibly long day you said they're essentially working with just hand tools really um, yeah. particularly here so give me a sense of was there any expectation of how much they should do or clear over mm -hmm. a period of time, over over a day, a week, or a month, what what was the expectation? Well, um, I don't have this figure, you know, precisely, but mm. it was like up to a million cubic meter of, you know, soil were excavated, and on average, it was about three cubic meter per man, per person, um, per uh, each day. Mm. So, yeah, on average, they have to carry about three cubic meter of rock mm. to, um, yeah, that's, that's the proportion of work that they have to do. And we have a display over here that you may already see, yeah, mm. that's the rock and rice. So we have the display of the three cubic um, meter of rock display yes. in the gallery. Mm. And you can see that's the size of work that they're expected to do per day mm. um, compared to the size of um, each meal they were given. Yes. Yeah, so it's very little.
The main cutting at Hellfire Pass, Conu cutting, took months of constant round-the-clock manual labour to complete. The pass, so hard to carve out of that sheer rock face, threatened to delay the entire project, hence the intense pressure to complete it on time, whatever the cost. And it was completed at the cost of the lives of 500 prisoners of war. Two of the guards from Hellfire Pass were sentenced to death at the war crime tribunals at the end of the war. After speaking with Nan, I continued to explore the line around the Hellfire Pass. When you visit Hellfire Pass, there's three cuttings along the area that you can walk. And the first that you come to is Conyu Cutting. And this one essentially is Hellfire Pass. But there are two others. The second one is Hammer and Tap Cutting, which is a smaller one. It's quiet when you get there as well, because you get away from the crowds. And if you go even further along, where I am now, you get to Hintock Cutting. What's interesting about Hintock Cutting is it goes back to a conversation I had a few weeks ago in Singapore with Jaya, when Jaya, I asked him what was the thing that he most took away, what did he most feel strongly about with Changi Museum. And he mentioned a drawing, which was two malarias and a cholera by Ray Parkin, which for him demonstrated the nobility and the comradeship of the POWs when they're in these conditions. And the reason I'm mentioning it now is this is exactly where that picture was drawn. It was absolutely on the spot at Hintock Cutting that he drew the picture to malaria and one cholera. So I'm very glad that I did make the effort to come out here. Is Jaya telling me about it? The question would be, what does Changi mean to me? Hmm. And it would be what we chose as our logo, to Malaria and Cholera by, uh, by uh, Ray Parkin, hmm. where you have two POWs on the deaf railway propping up a cholera patient, and you can easily get infected, but ensuring that, you know, and for me, that image by Ray Parkin, two cholera and a malaria, uh, they reflect that the nobility of man, even in the deepest of adversity, man is able, not only in terms of war and willing to make that sac- supreme sacrifice, but when you saw what was happening on the Deaf Railway, the reason so many survived was that they pulled together and they cared about someone next to them, uh, not just about themselves. And two malarias and cholera for me represents that nobility of man where in the face of adversity, you are willing to appeal to a higher level of uh, concern for your fellow human beings and, and to overcome that pain uh, that one suffers. And um, for me, the POW story or the civilian internee story is one of being able to face adversity um, and uh, maintaining your courage, your will to survive, but it not being a purely selfish act, but also thinking about the group of men who have become your band of brothers 
within that group and looking after them. Next time, as I explore the railway further, I'll hear more about the diseases such as malaria and cholera that people caught in the camps. I'll also find out about some of the extraordinary doctors who looked after the sick. Men who did so much with so little to save so many lives. If you're finding this podcast interesting, please visit the website www.deathrailwayrevisited.com where you'll find more information and photos of the location I visited. This podcast is by no means an exhaustive or comprehensive account of the Death Railway. It's based on what I saw and who I spoke to. So if you'd like to know more, there's a suggested reading and watching list on the website as well. I do hope you find them interesting.